Pacifica Radio, this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, E.J. Dion, the Washington Post columnist, talks about what it's going to take to beat Trump in the age of the coronavirus. His new book is called Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. Also, Katha Pollitt has some advice about how to spend all those hours at home watching movies on TV and reading. And finally, the great Gail Collins of the New York Times op-ed page will talk about the adventures of older women. Her book, No Stopping Us Now, is out in paperback. But first, our Washington political update. And for that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Here, in this case, as you noted, being my home. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for taking us into your home. Uh, we need to talk about the economic toll the virus is taking. Uh, the coronavirus recession, now pretty clear, will be deeper and longer, certainly exceed the Great Recession of 2008 and 9. Let's start with the unemployment numbers. Six and a half million claims filed last week. It's frightening. The previous high for one week was 680,000 at 82. Last week was almost 10 times more. Uh, how are you feeling about this? Well, the week before was 3.3 million. This week is 6.6 .6 million. These are just unemployment claims. There are more people who've lost their jobs who haven't filed their claims. But that's 10 million in two weeks, which this nation has never experienced before. And there is a Kaiser family poll out today that uh, concludes that 39% of Americans have experienced either a, their loss of job or a loss of income in the past, like, three weeks. This is extraordinary. This, this, this suggests to me not only is this going to exceed the Great Recession, I think it could well exceed the Great Depression. Which, which raises questions about public policy. Uh, I would point out that most of the people who are losing their jobs are in the kind of jobs, since this is not, it does, it, you know, it, it doesn't uh, really pertain as much to people who can work digitally, but it pertains a lot to people who have to be in a particular site to do what they do, who tend to be lesser-paid Americans uh, who cannot afford, let us say, to take out a COBRA policy when they lose their health insurance, assuming they had health insurance to begin with. And if they try to uh, go on to the uh, go into the Affordable Care Act, uh, none of them can afford more. Probably not none of them, but most of them can't afford anything other than the lowest plan, which has higher deductibles and copays, which they may not be able to afford. The, I think the policy implication for that is this. I think those in the Democratic Party, and I'm talking about elected officials, think tank folks, etc., those who deal with policy, uh, really have to rethink Medicare for all right now. The, the, the whole coupling of health insurance to your job, which is kind of an accident of American economic uh, history, it's only because this is the only kind of uh, uh, increase, uh, since they couldn't get increases in pay, this is what the auto workers and steel workers negotiated for uh, during World War II. 
uh, and that ended up setting a pattern for the whole economy. Uh, the whole linkage of your access to healthcare to your job uh, is is doesn't make any sense at a point in which I think within a couple of weeks at least a quarter of Americans won't have a job. And you know, for Democrats, and we're looking at you, Joe Biden, uh, who uh, you know are a little wary of Medicare for all. I think they should call for it at least on a temporary basis, uh, enabling everyone to get tested and and uh, you know at a time of pandemic. And if this isn't a teachable moment in the economics of healthcare, I don't know what is. Uh, and it's I think got to be a teachable moment for uh, the part of the Democratic Party which has been slow to respond to this. So, of course, the one big difference between now and the 30s is unemployment insurance. And uh, Congress last week did pass a lot of money for support for unemployment. There's that $600 that's supposed to appear in weekly checks. Uh, There's the direct payment of $1,200. Where do we stand on those? Well, let's look at that $600 increase for a minute, because that was, I think, in some ways, the single most underreported aspect of uh, the, uh, the congressional deliberations. It had, it had passed in the House, and you know, it was, it was, it was uh, an option to the Senate. But then four Republican senators objected to that, two of them from South Carolina, uh, Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott on the grounds that, well, you know, uh, that might be more than people make in their regular jobs. Well, first of all, this sounds to me a little bit bit like the proverbial kids who kill their parents and and then uh, throw themselves on the mercy of the court because they're orphans. If in South Carolina people don't make that, that is uh, largely because the history of South Carolina creates an establishment that doesn't want to pay anyone for anything. Uh, Not only was it the most rapidly pro-slavery state in the antebellum period, but it's one of only five states. It's never passed a minimum wage law of its own, and it uh, has the lowest rate of unionization of any state other than North Carolina. So to complain that uh, $600 a week would be too generous is entirely the fault of the elected officials in South Carolina who have depressed wages there. But secondly, more important, more important, and this is the part that was not reported, Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader, allowed this amendment to revisit this additional $600 in weekly unemployment payments to come before a vote of the Senate. And guess what? Every Republican except Susan Collins of Maine voted for it. The vote was 48 to 48. Now, it required 60 votes to pass, so it was never going to pass. But it put the Republican Party on record uh, at a time when, you know, it's looking to me like 30 to 40 percent of Americans are desperate for money to be opposed to this. Then, since they didn't strike it, it was it was indeed passed. But a completely underreported story that if the Republicans had had their druthers, it would not have been part of the two point two trillion dollar bill that was enacted into law uh, and signed by uh, Trump last Friday. Well, the Republicans uh, are still not taking the coronavirus as seriously as they should. The governors under our federal system have a huge amount of power at this point. The four states with the largest number of coronavirus cases all have Democratic governors. 
Florida is the state with the fifth most cases, and that has a Republican governor, Ron DeSantis. He resisted ordering the closure of non-essential businesses until until right now. He ordered it on April 1st to take effect uh, Friday, tomorrow. Uh, the two states represented by Republicans with the next highest number of cases, Georgia and Texas, there, the governors have not yet ordered the closure of non-essential businesses. This is as of April 1st. There are 27 states with governors who've ordered the closure of non-essential businesses. Only seven of them have a Republican governor. What is it about Republicans and the pandemic? Well, by the way, the governor of Georgia, uh, uh, Governor Kemp, who uh, engineered his own election as Secretary of State in 2018 by... Uh, throwing several uh, hundred thousand Democrats off the voting rolls, uh, acknowledged yeah. today that he didn't realize that uh, you could be a carrier of the disease and, but be asymptomatic, which which <laughs> means either he has no idea what's going on or he's a certifiable idiot or both. Those are not mutually exclusive. Uh, <laughs> okay. So uh, it's, it's, I would think it's a little disheartening to Georgians to realize their governor doesn't even understand how the coronavirus spreads. As for Ron DeSantos, you know, would think in a state that essentially markets itself as the place where Americans should retire, therefore <laughs> older Americans should congregate, would be a little more sensitive uh, to the fact that it's older Americans who are more likely, if they get the coronavirus, to become seriously ill and die. So, that's a factor, uh, you know, against DeSantis as well. But in general, uh, Republicans have uh, initially viewed the uh, the virus as somehow or other, uh, you know, another one of these Democratic talking points. President Trump wasn't taking it all that all that seriously, and God forbid a Republican governor should uh, go against either what Trump or Sean Hannity is saying, and and both. Trump and Sean Hannity were, were downplaying uh, the effects of the virus, um, and uh, Republican governors followed suit. Now, it is also, it is also the case that uh, since human contact is how you contract the disease, that, uh, you know, the, the greatest dangers are in cities. Now, yes. cities, almost, almost every one of the 30 largest American cities has a Democratic mayor and is heavily Democratic when it votes. Uh, the, the converse of that is that states that are preponderantly rural disproportionately have Republican governors and they may have lower rates of, uh, of infection at the moment because of the, the lack of density and therefore the lack of human contact. So that, that's, but you know, that's no excuse on, on their part uh, to put their citizens at danger, even if the level of danger isn't quite that of midtown Manhattan. The Republicans are enthusiastic about supporting small business, and it is vital to keep, you know, Main Street alive uh, and not have Amazon and, and Walmart as the only places where you can buy the stuff you need in America. Uh, there's a lot of small business aid that is coming into the pipeline right away. Uh, I understand from uh, your colleague at the American Prospect, David Dan, that 
ap applications for the bank loans supported by the Small Business Administration open tomorrow, Friday. These are the loans uh, that apply to companies that have fewer than 500 employees. It's a lot of companies. And uh, they are required to be used for payroll support and can be forgiven. That's actually a pretty good program from our point of view, isn't it? Yeah, it's a pretty good program, but I wouldn't uh, claim Republican uh, authorship thereof. I mean, this this is was in the House bill uh, initially, and, and of course they went along with it because there is uh, historically uh, a decent level of small business support for Republicans. However, in large corporations, they don't have uh, this kind of requirement. And when they apply to the person whom the... Uh, uh, the, the stimulus bill said is the design, designated person to make the decisions as to whether to give them funds, that being our Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, there is no such requirement uh, that for the loan that they uh, have to uh, keep, uh, keep workers on. Uh, and, and, and so not only uh, does the current crisis give an advantage uh, to Amazon above all, but also Walmart and, and large companies that can uh, sell their goods online and then distribute them. But it also gives them uh, fewer restrictions on uh, how they treat their workers. And so, um, it, you know, if, if anything uh, needed, uh, if we needed a stronger case as to why we need to uh, enforce antitrust laws as if they existed, which we largely haven't for about 35 years, uh, this should make that case. Let's look ahead for, uh, for a few months here. Let's assume the collapse of the economy and the spread of the virus prevents Trump from being reelected on November 3rd. Let's assume that on January 20th, Joe Biden takes the oath of office and a Democratic majority is sworn in in the Senate. They will be in a New Deal type moment. What should be at the top of their agenda? Well, first of all, that depends on whether the disease is still with us. And if it is expansion of public health, uh, Medicare for all on day three, uh, that sort of thing needs to be done right away. Also, uh, massive investment in public works to the extent that people can get out and uh, and do public work. Some of that can be done. Uh, the expansion of, of, of digital access may not require that to a degree, but the, the government, as in the 1930s, will have to be a significant employer. I should say in the 1940s, too, since essentially in the middle of World War II, virtually everyone was working uh, for the government, either in armed services or in defense production. By the way, that was the most egalitarian and vibrant economy American has known before or since. So uh, certainly those have to be among the uh, things the Democrats do. They also need to be sure that the Supreme Court upholds whatever it is they pass, and that may require adding a few justices to the court. Um, you know, one of the things about an emergency is that you can do more than uh, you can do when there's not an emergency. And, and Democrats, including uh, Joe Biden, need to be aware of that. Last thing, Donald Trump's approval ratings. The pollsters tell us they are up. His approval ratings have gone up. The average of all the polls from 
43% a couple of weeks ago to almost 46%. That's the highest they've been since right after his inauguration. How alarmed and upset should we be that Americans, that there are so many stupid Americans? Well, in general, we should always be upset that there's so many stupid Americans, but I wouldn't be that upset okay. by the poll numbers. If you look at the poll numbers of the governors who've responded, uh, Andrew Cuomo, Gavin Newsom, they've gone up hugely. Uh, 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 Cuomo, I think, had an uh, 87% approval rating for the way he's dealt with the crisis. Um, you know, this is a guy who no one actually likes. Um, similarly, <laughs> if you look at the poll, the, the polling numbers of European heads of government, they've gone up, you know, uh, in, in significantly more than Trump. And in general, at times of crisis, Americans' approval ratings of president go way up. Right after 9-11, Bush's approval rating hit, I think, about 90 percent uh, in the first weeks of his response uh, to the 9-11 uh, attacks. So the fact that Trump's polling has gone up by 3 percent, I think, actually should be uh, an encouraging fact that it, 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 it's at the absolute bottom of the automatic rise in approval for ex uh, chief executives in times of crisis. Harold Meyerson, he found an encouraging fact to end on. Read him at theprospect.org. Harold, thank you. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. It's always great to be here. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. What's our strategy for beating Trump in November? Is the coronavirus making that easier or harder? For comment, we turn to E.J. Dion. He's a columnist for The Washington Post. We see a lot of him on MSNBC. He also teaches at Georgetown. Last time we talked here, it was about his bestseller, One Nation After Trump. It's a wonderful book. Now he's got a new one out. It's called Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. E.J. Dion, welcome back. It's great to be with you again. Thanks for having me on. Well, some of my friends say the coronavirus is creating a Hobbesian world where we have a war of all against all and every man is out for himself. Get all the toilet paper you can before the next guy does. You don't see it that way. No, in fact, I think uh, a virus of this sort, a pandemic of this sort, makes everyone a little bit more socialist uh, because ah. there is nothing like a pandemic to remind us that the common good is actually an idea that is in the interest of each of us. It's a case where what is in the interest of each of us is in the interest of all of us. Uh, we have already seen in conversations about health care that it is a very bad thing in the middle of a pandemic uh, if a whole lot of people do not have health insurance and can't see a doctor or can't even afford to get tested for the coronavirus. Thus, everyone has suddenly come out in favor of socialized medicine, at <laughs> least for coronavirus tests. Um, secondly, it matters what happens to your neighbor. It matters what happens to the wealthiest or the poorest people 
in your community. Everyone is created equal when it comes to spreading a virus so that it really matters uh, that uh, others be taken care of. It really matters to all of us if people run out of purchasing power. It's very funny that even Mitch McConnell becomes a Keynesian uh, when a Republican president is in power and you have to uh, fight a recession that threatens to turn into a depression. So my sense is, of course, there are those Hobbesian or Hobbesian moments. I've always never known how the right way to pronounce that is uh, out there in supermarkets and the like. But I think on the whole, people are thinking really hard about uh, what they have to do together to survive uh, in this case. And so I think it pushes primarily the other way. And that brings us inevitably to the election My depressed friends say that crises usually help the incumbent. Trump will sell himself as a wartime leader. He'll give everybody $2,000, and this will make it much harder to defeat him. My cheerful and optimistic friends say that Trump's incompetence and megalomania have never been clearer, so it will be easier than ever to defeat him. And a few of my smartest friends say that almost everybody had already made up their minds about Trump before the virus hit, so it's all going to come down to turnout. Our base is bigger than his, so the question is, how much will the virus reduce the turnout, the turnout of our people, the turnout of his base? Please help us decide which of my friends are right. Well, I always tell everyone that I resigned from the prognosticators union at about midnight on election night 2016. Uh, So I will not pretend to have enormous confidence in any prediction I make here or anywhere else uh, this year. Although I always like to point out I was right about the popular vote, but that's not obviously what determines our elections, unfortunately. My feeling is when you look at the kind of candidate Joe Biden is, and I think it's fair to assume for the purposes of this conversation that he will be uh, the Democratic nominee, I think Biden might actually be a good fit for this moment uh, because it is true that presidents can sometimes rally a lot of support if they are wartime or quasi-wartime leaders. But Trump just isn't very good at that. Uh, he simply can't go out there and be unifying. He has to divide us. He's now trying to divide us over when we should uh, call off social distancing. Um, he started a debate on whether uh, grandparents, as the lieutenant governor in Texas remarkably said, should be willing to give up their lives so the economy can be good for young people. This from a party that claims to be pro-life. Uh, I don't think he's acquitting himself well. And there are a few polls out there showing that there's some approval of, you know, modest approval of his handling of this. Although I am struck at the huge gap between how people feel about Trump versus how they feel about the governors who get much higher ratings. But I think as a reassuring figure, and I think that's who he is, whatever else people think of him, Joe Biden might actually be the right candidate for the moment. He's obviously been eclipsed uh, because the primaries have had to be suspended and Trump is on television all the time. But I admit to a certain bias because 
When I watch him, I think of the, all those things your optimistic friends say about there is no way this can convey very well over time to a majority of Americans. Uh, but I am inclined to be more optimistic rather than pessimistic, also because I think Biden is a candidate who, even if he does have some turnout problems among younger Americans, which I think he will face, he does seem well set up to win back the voters who are winnable in the swing states in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin and Arizona. Uh, and he seems to be doing very well in the polling that we've seen in those states. So that pushes me to, toward more optimism. But again, I don't trust my own predictions anymore. Well, in your book, Code Red, you point to the 2018 election as the best example of how the Democrats should beat Trump in 2020. And their turnout was wonderful. Turnout in 2018 was the highest in a midterm since 1914. It was up 13 points over the previous midterm in 2014. And of course, the result was that the Democrats recaptured the House with a 43-seat gain, flipped seven Republican-held governorships, Will it be possible to do this again in 2020, or has everything changed because of the virus? Does the virus mean 2018 doesn't really matter anymore? One of the other reasons I feel that Biden may turn out to be a stronger candidate than a lot of people think is because the coalition that he has put together in the primaries looks very much like the voters who helped put together the 2018 midterm sweep. And by the way, it's really quite shocking how well Democrats did in 2018. They got 25 million more votes, Democratic House candidates, got 25 million more votes than Democratic House candidates did in the previous midterms uh, in 2014. Republicans got more votes too, but they only got 10 million more votes. That's an enormous shift. And Two of the key components of that were sweeps in uh, suburban areas, basically outside the South and even in parts of the South, like uh, in Texas and the Atlanta suburbs and obviously in Virginia, although Virginia is not much of a southern state anymore. You had that with Biden. And then he also obviously we've talked about this a lot over the weeks, picked up an enormous African-American vote so that one can feel, at least going into the race, that he has a reasonable shot at turning out a decent African-American vote. I think that coalition, the primary vote so far, also just turning to the primaries, uh, the turnout was way up in most of the primaries. Uh, In Virginia, if I remember the figure right, it was up uh, 69% over four years ago. In any state with early voting, turnout seemed to go Uh, way, way up. So all these are indicators that the feelings of 2018 have not gone away. And the mobilization of the non-Trump part of the electorate, which is Democrats, but also a lot of independents and a lot of even uh, some Republicans or former Republicans who just can't stand Trump. That seems to be a very mobilized piece of the electorate. And what I argue in Code Red, the core argument of the book is that Progressives and moderates need to come together to create this majority. The first sentence of the book is, will progressives and moderates feud while the country burns? 
And I argue that whatever disagreements they might have, uh, progressives and moderates, they broadly want to move in the same direction, whether you are for single payer health care or finishing the job with Obamacare and covering everybody with a public option. You are for covering everyone. The Republicans are trying to blow up Obamacare. I noticed that Joe Biden took a significant move in Bernie's direction, which I thought was a good idea on uh, Bernie Sanders free college idea. Biden substantially expanded his promises uh, on free college. He has become more expansive on the need to act on climate change. Again, the words, but also the music coming out of both Bernie Sanders and uh, Joe Biden so far is that they understand that history will not treat them kindly if either of them do things that will allow for the reelection of Donald Trump. Obviously, if Biden's a nominee, he would be the loser. But Sanders, I think, takes very seriously the obligation to do his part in beating Trump. And at the same time, he can continue to bring pressure on a President Biden and on the Democratic Party to move in a more progressive direction. And he has already done that when you look at where Democrats are now compared to where they were eight years ago. Well, one of the biggest questions about moving in a more progressive direction, of course, concerns the response to the economic collapse that social distancing is bringing about. The Obama recovery from the crash of 2008 seems to have deepened inequality in America. Is that a fair statement? To some degree, that is. Or you can put it another way, that the trends toward inequality were not reversed in the Obama years. And some of the regional inequalities probably grew as a result of the Great Recession. In if you take the period 1980 to the present, there were really only a couple of years toward the end of the Clinton administration where you actually had growth that was shared roughly equally across the quintiles. So, we, yes, we have had a long period of uh, inequality. It's striking when you looked at the Democratic response to the stimulus fight this time, the whole Democratic Party, even the most conservative uh, among the moderates in the Senate, and I would say Joe Manchin might fit that category pretty well, were outspoken at how wrongly pro-corporate the um, original Republican stimulus is. Manchin said, and I'm quoting uh, the key phrase, he said, I can't understand why Republicans are balls to the wall for big corporations and ignoring Main Street and workers. So hmm. something has happened to the Democratic discourse uh, across the board. And in a way, uh, if Biden wins, it's an opportunity to get done some of the things that were not done in the Obama years. That would include strengthening uh, labor rights in the country. And I think Biden's background as sort of the pro-labor kid from Scranton might make him more inclined to do that, extending health care to everybody. And I think um, making sure that the road out of this recession is a more we take a more progressive path out of it. And I think we're going to have to because so many people are going to be hurt in the next several months. It really is as close to a New Deal moment as we have had in a very long time. Now, 
of course, a kid, that's an optimistic view of a very bad situation. But I think both the popular support for more progressive action will be there and the need for it to restore the economy, I think, will push a lot of people in that direction, including we see for the moment Joe Manchin. E.J. Dion, his new book is Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. It's always great to talk with an optimist. E.J., thanks for talking with us today. It's great to be with you always. Thanks so much. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Since we're all staying home, we're looking for advice on things to do. And so we turn to Katha Pollitt, poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Yes, I'm always home. Well, a lot of us are looking for suggestions about movies to watch. What do you know about this film, Contagion? Contagion. Yeah, we saw that the other night. And it's uh, it's very exciting, um, as in stressful, upsetting, disturbing, makes you want to tear your hair out and <laughs> never leave your apartment. <laughs> uh, in, in this movie, a pandemic kills millions of people. But the good news is it's ultimately defeated by a black guy, a Jewish guy, and the three most beautiful women in the world. <laughs> well, that that sounds like a must viewing, but you say it was stressful and upsetting. Do you have a better idea of uh, how to spend your time than watching Contagion? Well, this is a very good time to catch up on the classics. So I took a look at uh, Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, which I had read like, I don't know, 50 years ago, a million mm-hmm. years ago. It's a terrific novel. He wrote it in 1722 about London's Great Plague of 1665 when he was only five years old. And uh, it's it's like so many 18th century, wonderful 18th century books. It's both incredibly boring and marvelous. So you're simultaneously annoyed saying, oh, just get on with it, will you? (laughs) And also amazed at how smart and well-written and interesting it is. I imagine that Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year shows just how much things have changed with epidemics since 1680. Well, some things have definitely changed. Um, There are, uh, the coronavirus is not as fatal as the Black Plague was, and uh, there aren't a lot of people dying in the streets. Uh, (laughs) So that's all good. Things could be worse. And uh, most people survive COVID-19, which is not was not so true of the Black Death. But some things don't change, mostly having to do with the folly of human beings. We may have come far, you know, medically, technologically, socially. You know, it's not the 17th century. We can manage emergencies much better if we choose to do that, as not everybody does. But in some ways, people haven't changed at all. Uh, they had quacks, they had miracle cures, and we still have those, um, even though we have far higher levels of education and medicine can actually help you, which it couldn't really do back then. Um, so we have, you know, they had, oh, let's go to this fortune teller and we have crystals and anti-vaxxers and homeopathy. 
So uh, in Contagion, interesting, there's a wonderful theme that is more meaningful now than then, where there's a blogger who is pretending to be a crusading journalist. He's always going about, print is dead, print is dead. And he makes millions decrying the mainstream media and promoting a bogus cure. And I say, you know, today he'd have his own show on Fox News. That, that's the standard now. Um, and, and this was, this was uh, you know, how different things were in 2011, where that would seem like, oh, here's this really weird thing that's going to happen. It happened. You know, if you compare the Lord Mayor of London in 1665 to Trump, there's just no question they, that that long dead politician handled things much better. I mean, you know, we'll, we're going to forget how Trump, fumbled and denied everything in the critical early phase of COVID-19 when we could have made an enormous difference. And he was saying it was a democratic hoax. I mean, really, you know. So sticking with Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague here for a minute, I, I imagine one of the biggest differences is is that God, wasn't God a much bigger explanation of things in the in the 17th century? The plague was God's punishment for the wicked or something like that? Well, you know, it's funny. I don't really get Defoe's actual position because he was very against the very popular idea that the plague was God's judgment on the unright- unrighteous. He, he noticed that, well, actually, good people and bad people seem to both be struck down or both escape. There, you, there's really no rhyme or reason to it. But he also believed that somehow the hand of God was in it, but not in a miraculous way. He had that clock, you know, that 18th century God is the watchmaker idea where, wow. you know, he everything is nature, except every now and then God puts his finger on the scale. But he was, uh, I, I think he was, uh, for his time, a very, very rational person. Can I tell you something that isn't in my column that um, I forgot to mention about him? He Please. Figured, okay, so he figured out what we're, we are also figuring out about COVID-19, which is how can it be? that you're fine, and then all of a sudden you're sick. They did not understand this back then, and that was where they got the idea that you could be struck down in an instant, that the, that this plague just worked incredibly quickly. But actually, he said, that's not true. You had the plague, and it was working internally, and then what looks like your sudden death is actually the last phase of a disease you've had for a while. And you were contagious all that time. And that's how it's Wow. Through. Yeah. So that's just like now. So today, uh, there are a few people who believe that God's hand is evident in the plague, aren't there? Well, there are. I mean, feminists, lesbians, gay people, liberals, atheists. Those are all blamed, as they always are. To say nothing of Trumpies who believe the coronavirus is a democratic hoax, or what about, oh, yeah. Rush Lim- what about Rush Limbaugh? I love this. How this how people can be so ignorant and stupid and be listened to by millions of people is such a mystery. So he told his millions of listeners that the reason it's called COVID-19 is because it's the 19th coronavirus. So it's obviously something that happens all the time and nothing to worry about. In fact, 19 stands for 2019, the year this particular disease <laughs> was uh, began. So... There it is. So after we watch Contagion, after we read Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, do you have any other recommendations for reading? Well, I do. I I think you should try The Decameron. This is a fun book that is 800 pages long, so you might not get all the way through it. 
It's about uh, 10 people, 10 young people, seven, seven beautiful women and three handsome young men, and they escaped the plague of 1348 by holing up in the Florentine countryside where they flirt and tell dirty stories and have a high <laughs> old time. Uh, so I recommend that. Just take yourself out of this current world and put yourself in fantasy Italy. So 1348, that was, that was a really long time ago. Are there, are there any lessons for us uh, 652 years later? Well, I like the message of don't let yourself go. It's hard to do, I know. But you'll just get depressed if you, if you wear the same clothes every day. And so keep your standards up. And um, I'm keeping my standards up. I'm wearing, uh, right now, I'm wearing a very pretty pair of purple pants and a nice black shirt. <laughs> and I've got my earrings on. And I put, you know, glop in my hair. Even though it's just me and my husband here, no one gets to see this except for him. Although he is a real person, so there's that. And I think you should, you know, try to make a nice meal if you can. Go for those solitary walks. Play music, play games, keep up your friendships, even if it's, you know, online. You know, it shouldn't be, this shouldn't be the moment at which you sort of turn into a bat in a cave. Katha Pollitt, not turning into a bat in a cave. Her new column at The Nation is called Tips on Self-Isolation from Daniel Defoe and Giovanni Boccaccio. Katha, thank you for the excellent advice. Thanks for having me, John. Stay well. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Now it's time to talk about the adventures of older women in American history. For that, we turn to Gail Collins. It's the subject of her new book. Of course, she's the New York Times op-ed columnist. Her last book was When Everything Changed, The Amazing Journey of American Women from 1960 to the Present. We talked about it here. Her new book is No Stopping Us Now. Gail Collins, welcome back. Thank you. So what's the correct terminology here? How do you feel about oldsters? <laughs> Nobody likes oldsters. Okay. <laughs> Nobody wants to be an oldster uh, ever, 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 I guarantee you. Well, a- another possibility is uh, Leslie Stahl, who reviewed your book in the New York Times Book Review, referred to non-young women. Should we go with that? It's okay by me, but actually, you're just a woman, you know? You're, you're, we're just talking about women of different ages, but older doesn't offend me. I mean, I, I, I'm good with older, too. Okay. Well, the basic question, of course, is how old are women when they become older? Where's the dividing line between young and not young? Well, that was one of the reasons I wrote the book. You know, when I was doing my other women's history books, at some point I came across a letter that one of the early colonists, and they were all guys, wrote back to England begging for people to send them wives, you know, asking for women to come over, and saying that their desired wife would be civil and under 50 years of age. (laughs) So at that point, you're not older until you're over 50, that's for sure. But then I found also an ad from the 1970s for um, Loving Care. It was a hair coloring, and their, their slogan back then was you're not getting older, you're getting better. But if you read beyond the slogan, it said, these days, anyone over 25 is considered old. (laughs) 
I thought, wow, we're going <laughs> over 50 is fine, under 50 is fine, over 25 is old, and now you have, you know, you have Nancy Pelosi, I think, just turned 80, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg running the world. So it, it's, it varies with time. And one of the points of the book was to try to figure out what it is about the status of older women at different points in our history that makes a difference in the way they're perceived. And you have a theory about the turning point in history at which youth became everything for women. What was the turning point? Well, there were some. There were a bunch. But one of the biggies, if you happen to be an older woman, a very bad time to be around would have been the 1920s. The country went from being entertained in theaters where people liked to see, it didn't matter if you were older because you were sort of far away and you were just projecting your personality. And um, it was better if you were larger because, you know, people from far away could see you better. You went from that kind of theatrical experience to movies in which every tiny little wrinkle was magnified in the screen. And suddenly you went from people like Lillian Russell, who was, I think, 50, 60 years old at her height, to the first Miss America, who was crowned in 1920-something, was 16 years old. Mm. She was playing marbles behind the stage, but she was the ideal beauty of the age. So that was a very bad time to be an older woman. The invention of the close-up in movies. The oldest important woman in the United States right now, you suggested, was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Is that right? You could also argue Nancy Pelosi, certainly. But uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is not only wildly important, but wildly popular. I mean... uh, Jiminy, you know, she can't go anywhere without being mobbed by admirers. And she's several years older than Nancy Pelosi, too, I think. Yeah, Nancy has just turned 80, I think. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 86. I learned from your book an interesting history. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, hasn't retired even when her wonderful husband was sick and dying. That's different from Her predecessor, Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman on the Supreme Court, she did retire to take care of her husband when he got sick. How how did that work out for her? It was sort of tragic. You know, her husband was very ill, and his mind was fading. He had Alzheimer's, and she wanted to be with him. They had a very close and and very strong marriage. But then he was taken to a, a home rehabilitation home, retirement home, and and she would go and visit him every day, and he fell in love with another woman in the retirement home. Because, of course, he didn't remember by that point who anybody was anyway, and she had to sit there every day visiting him, watching him snuggle around with this other woman. And it wasn't really his fault, but it was just such a tragic end for such a great justice. And, and, And the idea that she had given up that critical vote in which she was the swing vote in so many decisions in order to return to a personal life that just was tragically kind of ended, uh, might have been, I think it was a, she, when I talked to Ruth Bader Ginsburg once, she did mention that in passing, that that she wasn't going to retire. We talked about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You mentioned Nancy Pelosi, who just turned 80. There's also Jane Fonda, who's been arrested every Friday for the past four weeks, protesting at the White House about the lack of action on climate change. She's, I think, 81. Shouldn't she go on the list? Well, she's been on for a long time because, I mean, her her whole exercise routines and the whole idea, I mean, she was one of the people in our modern era anyway, and this has happened before, but in our era, who came through to the general public with the idea that if you 
exercised every day, you would feel better and feel younger and you could do it and there was no reason you shouldn't do it when you were 50 or 60 or 70 or whatever age. And it was it was a, a big, great, you know, kind of cosmic thought change in, in the country for older women and middle-aged women in particular. All of the women we've been talking about here are big liberals. Are there any Republican women in Congress or in national politics who are older and important? Is there a Republican Nancy Pelosi? I have to well, I have to point out in general that if you look at the composition of Congress, particularly the Senate, the number of women in general on the Republican Party is pathetically small right now. If they got more women in Congress, I believe that things would change. The woman, uh, one of the older women that I write about a lot in the book and our history is uh, Republican Senator Margaret Chase Smith, who was just an example of everything you should be if you uh, work in Congress. She was the first person who called out Joe McCarthy when everybody else was terrified of him. She was a moderate. She ran for president against Barry Goldwater because she thought he would be such a terrible change for the Republican Party to the right. And um, she said that every single story that was written about her started with the 66-year-old senator. (laughs) And it just went on. And every single time, nobody could resist mentioning how old she was when they pointed out that when they wrote about her running for president in the very first paragraph. And I think it was the L.A. Times or someone wrote a story about her complaints, and the headline was, 66-year-old senator complains about age. (laughs) So there was no win in that one. But she was just fantastic. And another Republican woman of the past, Millicent Fenwick from New Jersey, you know, continued on well into her old age, and she was just amazing. And when she finally left, she went to Rome and uh, was ambassador for the U.N. at Rome and worked very hard on world hunger issues and just never stopped until, you know, nature took its course. But she just bopped around forever. Well, I want to talk about plastic surgery. Of course, it's a big topic of gossip, who's had work done. Mm. Uh, What was it that Trump said about Kim Novak after seeing her at the Academy Awards? He said she should sue her plastic surgeon. I mean, she did really, you know, look deeply plastic surgeon. But she was a very shy and retiring person who had not been out and doing any celebrity thing for years. And that was a crushing thing for her. She uh, she never really recovered from it. Uh, she was the, such a shy and retiring person. And then to come back out for the first time in what was supposed to be this one moment of glory and then have that come back to her, it was, it was just terrible. So be nice to people. (laughs) Some of my favorite not young women in your book who have been important in American history. In many ways, Eleanor Roosevelt was the most famous older woman in America for for a couple of decades, wasn't she? She was. I think she was the most famous middle-aged woman in the history of America. I mean, she was 48, I think, when she first entered the White House. And she went everywhere. Uh, she was. She had her own group of people who she brought into the White House, who all tended to be more liberal than the ones that FDR would have picked out on his own. But they were very influential, and she was on the move all the time. She was going to Appalachia. She was going to poor black communities, and she traveled by herself, which drove the Secret Service nuts. So finally, they 
taught her how to shoot so she could carry a pistol with her. <laughs> and I just love the idea of this, you know, 50-something-year-old woman behind the wheel driving in all these remote roads with her pistol under the seat, and uh, it just it knocks me out. <laughs> Also, obviously, we must talk about Hillary Clinton. Of course, she was famous when she was young. She was in Time magazine as the voice of her generation when she graduated from, was it Wellesley in 1969? Let's she talk- gave a very famous speech where, you know, she was just, you know, my generation is not going to take any of this stuff that, you know, and humiliated all the other speakers who were doing the normal, you know, go forward young women and obey your elders kinds of things. And she, one of the people who first inspired her when she was a teenager, she read in, I think, Life magazine, a big story about Margaret Chase Smith and her her fight against the conservatives in her own party, her fight to run for president. And she said she'd never realized a woman could do things like that. So Republican Margaret Chase Smith was one of really the first people who formed the springboard for young Hillary Rodham. And many Hillary supporters, many friends of mine, thought that the fact that she was an older woman counted against her with millions of voters. Do you think that's true? I don't know. I think it's the woman thing, not the older thing. And that I, I point you to this year. We've got three people over 70 in the Democratic primaries right now. And the one whose age does not get talked about is Elizabeth Warren. Everyone talks about Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, but nobody talks about the fact that Elizabeth Warren is 70 years old, just because she, she looks very fit and, you know, vigorous. So I, I, I don't know that the age thing is nearly as much of a problem for women in politics as the woman thing is. One last thing, your title, No Stopping Us Now. I know that as a 1979 disco song uh, by McFadden and Whitehead, but that's probably not what you're referring to. Not what I'm, no. It was, it was actually, we sat down when, when I was, to be honest with you, um, the, the working title when I was writing the book, uh, I'm terrible on titles, was You're Not Getting Older, You're Getting Better, from that, that famous commercial <laughs> yes. from the 70s. But it really sounded, You're Getting Better kind of sounded like it was a, a book about chemotherapy or something. So we <laughs> decided we should try to find something else. And we just all sat down, uh, all the publishers people and myself, and just threw things around. And somebody just said, No stopping us now. And everyone said, Yes, forward, onward. And there you were. And I, but I was very happy that it's the adventures of older women in America that we're writing in the subtitle, because there have been a lot of adventures. The title is No Stopping Us Now, The Adventures of Older Women in American History. The author is Gail Collins. Gail, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. Our show is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, with additional engineering from William Broughton. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. And thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Uh